This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. In this, the final episode in our series on teaching in context, we speak with Chris Head about the role of context in teaching narrative psychology. So today our guest is Dr. Chris Head. He's a professor at the University of West Georgia. Chris has done a lot of important work on the history, theory, and methods of qualitative inquiry. Uh, so welcome, Chris. We're happy to have you with us. Hi. Thanks for having me. So our conversation today is part of our series discussing the pedagogical value of putting psychology's canonical content and methods into historical, social, political context. So in these podcasts, we've been focusing on a particular exercise or lecture or assignment that, and that becomes kind of a focus for our discussion. So I think maybe we could start there. Chris, if you could give us a little bit of the background, tell us a little bit about the um, iterative contestation exercise that you're going to talk about today. Yeah, so before I kind of get into the what I did this last semester, I think I need to set it up a little bit. Um, so when when Josh sent me the email asking if I wanted to do this, he, he had a line. He's like, you probably do this already in your classes, meaning you already probably infuse context in your classes. And it's true. In fact, I, I have a hard time even thinking that that wouldn't be the case. So a little bit of background might be helpful. Um, I know I, I heard on one of your other podcasts that you're kind of taking the position as, as psychologist, it might be strange for us to think about introducing this stuff. But I was a history major in undergrad. So it's, you know, I, I almost take it for granted that context is important. So um, yeah, starting off as a history major, I then went on and got a, a master's in education. And that propelled me to be a broad field social science teacher in high school. And basically, I got tapped because of the classes I'd taken in college, a lot of social sciences. Um, I was tasked with teaching classes like psychology and sociology. So I was essentially teaching myself psychology as part of my job. And coming from a history background, I didn't even know how to conceive of psychology without thinking about it historically. So I started from Freud and I talked about, you know, how, you know, how the different perspectives kind of built from this psychoanalytic perspective, which is also something I think I heard in one of your other podcasts. So I think I was, I think I intuitively always understood psychology in historical context. That being said, um, Getting into this last semester, I took Josh's invitation as a challenge to do something fairly specific and fairly intentional. So this was with a course, um, Narrative Psychology, which I taught once before. And coming out of that class at the end, I realized that I would sort of missed the opportunity to help students understand some of the most foundational issues of narrative psychology. What is it? What is a narrative? How do you make sense of a narrator? So I, I took the opportunity to engage in this thing we're doing with creating this exercise as a way to help students really focus in on some of these conceptual issues. And, and, I, and I, take, I was more intentional and specific in having students make sense of what is narrative inquiry? Why would you do it? What does it afford, et cetera? Um, more explicit intention on um, helping them define what exactly a narrative is in the context of their research. But the, the set of exercises that I'm going to talk about today were actually to help them understand 
like what is a person doing when they're telling a story like what how do you conceptualize a narrator so what i'll be talking about today and what i'll be presenting later in apa is a set of exercises to really help students wrestle with some of the thornier issues around what it means to be a narrator um do you want me to get into the exercise or do you want to pause for a little bit and discuss can, the context? I think we can probably, you know, uh, push forward a little bit more and, and talk a bit about what exactly it was that you did in the class. Okay. So I should say that even in the last time I taught the class, there was a fair amount of history included. So I included um, some work from Sarban who kind of introduces the idea of the narrative turn. So they understand how narrative psychology fits in. And in this regard, it's helping students to understand how coming from sort of mainstream psychology, you can situate narrative inquiry. Um, there was some work by Bruner, some work by Mac Adams, which was kind of pulling from cognitive psychology and developmental psychology. So already in the course was a fair amount of energy devoted toward helping students understand how narrative psychology fits into mainstream psychology and into the historical progression of mainstream psychology. But what I wanted to do was really help them wrestle, contend with the issue of what it means to like have a conception of a narrator. And so the set of what I did was essentially have multiple points in the course where I'm introducing arguments or positions or papers or exercises to help students really figure out for themselves what a narrator is. Um, and I say this because my assumption is, and I, I think this is probably true from how it played out in the class, is that people have sort of implicit theories about what it means to be a narrator. And until you sort of like contend with them and make sense of them and make them make them explicit and maybe even make them explicit in the context of um, altering positions or other positions, then it's hard to really know how you're making sense of a narrator so that you can enact that in a project. So starting from, I think the third, the third class in the course, I started off with a brief presentation of the argument that Pickering and Rutherford make in their History of Psychology in Context book, which is chapter two. They essentially make the argument that this sort of, there's a sort of modern subjectivity that emerged through long range historical practice, practices, the introduction of Protestantism and all that, that entailed, mirrors, the industrial revolution, essentially making the argument that our kind of current taken for granted um, notion of modern subjectivity is the result of um, these social practices, people engaging in these individualizing practices. So I start there because I want them to, to, to have some initial sort of check on what this sort of taken for granted modern subjectivity is. So I introduced that presentation and that introduces a discussion. So what do you guys think about this? Have you ever thought about this before? Um, how, do you, how do you make sense of it? And that becomes sort of the first move in this iterative contestation, essentially trying to contest the sort of what Pickering and Pickering and Rutherford describe as a taken for granted assumption of modern subjectivity. So that's the first sort of contestation. And then after that, um, in the, the following class, 
I have another brief presentation that sort of sets up the, the birth of postmodernism. And in both these presentations, I'm using like artwork to try to, to you know, to bring it in. I, I typically don't present or lecture. So both of these things were really new to me to actually like kind of um, curate a, a presentation for students. It was actually kind of fun and, you know, it didn't really, it doesn't really accord with my typical way of thinking about teaching, but I took it on as part of this challenge. And so the second uh, presentation was on introducing postmodernism in, with, you know, abstract expressionism, World War II, all that stuff. And this presentation um, sort of concludes with a quote by Ken Gergen, who's essentially saying, you know, the post, under postmodern conditions, the self is under constant negotiation, the center does not hold. So right then you're seeing sort of a second, a second contestation. So starting from a sort of taken for granted assumption of subjectivity, framing that historically as a check and then showing how a lot of people who have been thinking about this say that that taken for granted notion of subjectivity needs to be amended or is different now. So that's sort of the second move. Um, and then a couple classes later, I bring it more, I take that general argument about what it means to even understand a person, a subject, whatever word you want to use, and put it in the context of narrative inquiry. So I start off by um, uh, having them read an article by McAdams, 2008 article, in which he makes his argument about, you know, what life story psychology is about. And the kind of key theoretical point there is that um, there's an assumption that the narrator is sort of um, integrating their lives so that there's a wholeness to the narrator, that they're always sort of building this sort of coherent, cohesive, integrative self. And then right after that, I introduced them to Bamberg, um, an, an interview he did in 2016, in which he essentially critiques the, the big story model. He doesn't, he, I don't think he explicitly calls like says that McAdams is doing the big story model but you know if, you, if you're if you read between the lines you can see what he's doing he's taking on McAdams conception of a narrator so at this point they already have sort of you know four different points of contestation to make sense of and at that point I asked them in you know this is a online course I asked them to to give their on the spot in the moment conception of what they think a narrator is. So the the prompt is how do you conceptualize and how do you conceptualize a narrator and how might that conceptualization play out in your project that you're developing? And so that's the first time I get some sort of like concrete um, data about like what kind of sense they're making of this conceptualization. And then later um, I have a a third reflection paper where I ask them to talk about their project and they have to explicitly sort of conceptualize the narrator as it fits into their project. And then late, this is all set up for their research proposal. So the idea is that by the end of the course, they have proposed a narrative research project. And what I should be able to see is how they enact their conceptualization of a narrator. So that's really what it's about, these kind of recurring moves of different arguments and different kind of claims so that they can navigate these different positions and try to make sense of them for themselves in the context of their project. Chris, what level is this class? 
It is a, it's a graduate level course and it's open to doctoral and master's students, but for some reason this semester only master's students took the course. So it was all master's students. And some of the students, I would say about 50% of the students in the course had already taken me for psychology as human science. So they were sort of already versed in a lot of the kind of, um, I don't know, thornier conceptual issues of doing human science. So they had already been exposed to say, Ruth Allen Josselson's paper on the hermeneutics of faith and suspicion. They had been exposed to Levinas. They had been exposed to a lot of different things which would sort of lead a student to challenge, to even conceptualize what a person is or what a psychological subject is in the first place. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that, that I was thinking about as you were discussing that was this kind of student reaction to these various things like for example the the you, know, you mentioned the Pickering Rutherford and as you know you know I've taught that to students lots of students over the years so I wonder how how do the students or do you have evidence of how the students metabolized that argument did it make sense to them you know like how, you know, how did they um, respond to that uh, uh, argument that you mentioned from the Pickering Rutherford text yeah, I've actually done quite a bit of thinking about this exact moment in the course. Um, because I think the general response is like, whoa, that's cool. I've never thought of that before. Which on some level is, you know, what I was hoping might be the case. But I think I probably was hoping it would be a little more than just something you would sort of like consume, a piece of information you would consume and say, I like or I dislike, you know, like something that might have a more transformative capability. And I, this is one of these points where I realized I need to do more work there to try to um, set up a specific type of response um, as opposed to a general question like, so how did you react to their argument? Does that make sense to you? Um, I need to do a little bit more to move beyond a response other than, oh, I thought it was really cool or I've never thought about that before. Um, yeah, I've often been really surprised by how positively students at, at all levels respond to that argument in the sense that it makes sense to them. To, to me, I thought it was somewhat abstract. And so I would dedicate time to explaining it. And then I realized the students didn't need me to do that because they sort of got it instinctively because it's very, it's, it's an argument that's very grounded in particularities, right? Like you've mentioned, like the mirror, like mass producing um, accurate mirrors. Like this, this is something that students can, easily conceptualize that as a way of creating a more kind of reflective sense of self, right? Like there's something obvious about that argument. And I think in a history class, it's, um, you know, students, they're being asked to try and make do historical explanation as part of the class. And so I think they often draw on that argument as one they, that they can understand. And so because they have to use some, some kind of argument, they often will, will, you know, take that one up, you know, and that, then it sort of gets a little bit metabolized. And so it always comes back, even though it's chapter two, I hear them talking about it all the way till the end of the semester sometimes. Yeah, I agree. The, the example of the mirror in particular is a thing that, that seems to resonate. And I think for the reasons you're talking about, it's, it's so on the nose in terms of how it represents a broader argument. Um, I think what I probably, in retrospect, what I would like to have done is like push a little more on that, not just that it's cool that people started to see themselves and that was reflective of them looking at themselves, but more 
the, the, the deeper argument I think is that our notions of selves are socially constructed and they can change in the context of you know, various events, technologies, et cetera. That's sort of like the second level of depth I should have gone a little further into or I, I would have liked to gone further into. Ultimately to set up, which is my real goal is like, okay, so if this notion of a, if a, if a self is constructed, how does that influence you in terms of how you're thinking about the potential, the research you might potentially do, which is really the kind of deeper edge of where I'm setting them up for. Um, so the next time I teach this class, if I teach this class again, that will be a place that I devote some more attention to. Chris, how, how do you imagine that if it goes better, you know, they're saying, wow, that's cool. But if it, if it goes deeper for them, if, if it becomes this transformative experience, how do you imagine that looking in your students? How are you gonna know that it's gone deeper? Um, so I guess I can see that on a couple of different levels. I think I could see that more in the moment in terms of them taking on the, the idea of even themselves as being, the way that they think about themselves as being something of a social construction. That would be something like more in the moment. But really what this is setting up for is so that they are thinking about it in the context of the research they're gonna propose. Yeah, and I, and I guess I, I wonder that because thinking about that, because I run into this in my, in my own courses, of course, when I try to introduce an idea and students all the time will say it's cool, which is really gratifying to my ego. But then, but then what comes next after that? And, and as you were, um, have you thought about asking them um, to try and explain themselves as a socially constructed individual? No, I haven't asked, I haven't thought about that specific wording, but it's a, it seems like a good approach to take. I mean, I don't know how they'd be able, whether they'd be able to handle something like that or not, but I guess that's what I'm thinking, like, particularly as I'm listening to you, like what, because this is an idea that is, well, I was thinking, wow, that's really cool. Cause I guess I've never encountered this. I, I haven't used Pickering before. I haven't taught a lot of history either. But, but I hadn't really thought about um, even the fact of a narrator, the fact that narrators um, don't show up in the way that they show up until we have this certain modern conception of the self. And, and so I'm trying to imagine myself what I, how I construct myself. I don't know, I don't really have the language for it. Yeah, I think uh, Josh's point earlier kind of hits at something. On one level, it's sort of intuitive. And on some level, the students are like, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense. You know, like I, I'm always in my head thinking about why I do things and the idea that it would be like the way that I'm making sense of myself is situated in the context of how other people are making sense of themselves. But to actually take that on is like a, it's something that you can walk away from the abstraction, I suppose, that you can kind of move away from like, wow, this is cool. And I can see this into the abstract and the lesson, like, well, wow, we're socially constructed beings. Something that this makes me think about it is like the, the kind of classical positioning statement that qualitative researchers are kind of supposed to do, right? Where they, where they say something, usually it's like a paragraph or two, you know, about 
you know, who they are and where they're coming from and why they're doing the study that they're doing. And I mean, it, you know, that's, I, I think that's probably not as deep as you're hoping students will go, the typical, but it, it might be an interesting context in which to get, ask students to, to do some of this reflection, you know, like, you know, write, write a real reflexivity paragraph, you know, one, one where you really are thinking about all the ways that you have positioned yourself and been positioned and maybe you haven't even thought much about that. Yeah, yeah. Seems like a good comparison. I mean, that could even be, I guess, in theory, that could even be like an, an exercise or something that you did in class, depending on the kind of class it is. But if it's a class where they're doing like research proposals, like, you know, write a reflexivity paragraph, but don't give me your biography or your personal biography, but instead give me kind of like the cultural biography that has produced this person that you are. Yeah, so going a little bit further into these like these movements or these iterative exercises, it's really the the third reflection paper in the course, which is like, you know, week 11, so fairly far into the course, where I ask students to sort of articulate the project they want to do. And then um, and after articulating their project to sort of go through and contend with some of these major um, conceptual issues, reflexivity being one of them. But in this paper is where I asked them to conceptualize the narrator. And this is sort of where the rubber hits the road, where they have to actually describe what they think is going on when a person creates a narrative in the context of this project they're doing. And that's that seems to be the point where I'm sort of inviting them to do this work in a very concrete way. And are these projects that they will go on to actually carry out? Um, is it kind of an open-ended thing? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think it ranges from a lot of people sort of taking on the project as just part of the course, you know? So one of the, the reasons I do the project isn't so much to be sort of setting everyone up for research, but more that I think it has a, a pedagogical benefit. There's sort of a concrete target of application, meaning as we go through these conceptual issues, I'm always bringing them back to how it would play out in their project so that things like reflexivity or conceptualization of a narrator aren't just abstract notions. They're things that you have to contend with in the project, in the context of this real research problem. So I think some people take it up as that, like, oh, this is like something you do for this course. And I understand why you would do it because it sort of contextualizes and grounds the, the learning. But other people do take it on as um, master's theses, dissertations, et cetera. So there's a pretty big range. And as you might expect, the more sort of seriously students tend to um, take the project kind of coincides with the utility they see it playing out in their academic career. So the first time I taught the course, I had a doctoral student and it was really clear that this was a student who was working on a project that they thought might go be their dissertation at some point. And this student like took it incredibly seriously, like probably the most serious work I've seen in all my years as a teacher. Um, but that's not always the case. Some people kind of go through the course and see you later, I had fun, bye-bye. I think it's always good to respect a student's right to not take your teaching too seriously. 
<laughs> yeah. I used to be offended by that. And now I'm like, you know, sometimes I did that when I was a student and there are good reasons for that. And I don't need everybody to think I'm the best and to take everything I do seriously. Yeah, well, right before the podcast, I was actually listening to you guys' um, podcast with Mich- Michelle around the idea of power. And I was thinking a lot about that. And it's it's something I'm pretty explicit about, letting people know this is the structure I set up for these reasons, um, but take it on as you want. And I think there's part of me that actually appreciates the people who take on the project in a way that's completely like self-serving you know, the people that are almost like, let me see how I can like technically do the project while really doing the thing that like is most intriguing to me. Chris, this is maybe a little bit left field, but um, as, as you talk about this, this course, I'm interested to know whether you see a connection between what you're teaching and um, the way that we narrate our own lives. So I realized that this is a, this is a, um, a research course, uh, but but I almost, and, and I've never really been interested, I've been interested in narrative research. I've never been, I've never thought it's a methodology I would adopt, but I, I find myself wanting to take your class just to, to make more sense out of how I narrate my own life and how that narration might affect the trajectory of my life. Is this something that that is is ever part of this class or something you think about? Yeah, I probably should give a little bit of background here. Um, So the program I teach in has sort of roots in humanistic existential psychology. And there are a fair amount of students who come to school as part of like a transformation journey. Meaning I I think probably, I don't know the percentage, but not all the students who are coming into this, I think have the long-term goal of being a psychologist. I think maybe a lot of them have the goal of being a therapist, but I think the, the most overarching feature is people are like trying to learn themselves. They're trying to get exposed to deep ideas so that they can better understand themselves. So I always try to make room for that in my courses. And yeah, in that regard, totally. I mean, one of the goals here is that as you're engaging with the field of narrative inquiry, you're thinking a little bit more deeply about the stories you tell yourself about yourself. And I would even say that you know, this last semester, I had a student who was really interested in Buddhism and was always bringing Buddhism in to make sense of narrative psychology. This idea that like, oh, I'm constructing this sort of narrative that may or may not have any direct like resonance with who I am or my being or whatever it may be, but really kind of wrestling with the constructed notion. So I hope I'm answering your question the way you intended, but yeah, I definitely hope that there's, um, an element of learning about narrative psychology that makes them more reflective about the stories they tell themselves and the stories they tell others. You know, as as I'm thinking about um, the class that you're teaching and um, this series of exercises that you're doing, you know, I'm just imagining in my own classes some of the ways that I'd want to do something like this. And I'm working with undergraduate students um, who are going to have little to no exposure to some of the postmodern existential background that it sounds like your students are coming with um, to some degree. And so, so my reaction is um, there's so much of objectivism 
to um, to draw out to make the students aware of and then to contend with. And I'm curious if that is something that you maybe have a luxury of like that that's our, that work is already done for your students or or if that's something that you have to address through this process over the course of the semester. Yeah, there's sort of I think two major things that I have to contend with. One is the sort of you know like the sort of general taken for grantedness of objectivity and specifically the language of bias and the idea that every psychology student um sort of it's their goal to eradicate bias in this course you know i can't think of a course that makes that more challenging than a course on narrative inquiry like where what you're doing is actually exploring the way that people are constructing things in their own way um so that's one thing that is i'm always contending with um but there's also another contention is the sort of residue that comes from people being in this humanistic existential program that is very on an implicit level focuses on the self and things like agency and autonomy and um, authenticity so a lot of sort of implicit notions of the essentiality of a self or you know whatever term you want to use and that's actually the hardest thing to sort of to deal with because what happened in this last semester was a kind of the perfect example. People read McAdams who kind of, he talks about this sort of integrative cohesive self and it makes complete sense of them. Like, yeah, I get it. And then they get Bamberg who's directly challenging that and it's really tough for them. So those are some of the things that, that we can, I contend with one is the sort of general, you know, notion of transcending bias somehow. And the other is, the sort of implicit individualism that comes from studying humanistic existential psychology. I think yeah. a, I think a, a, a theme that runs through what you're saying, and I think also maybe through a, a lot of these podcasts that we've been doing in this series is this kind of this challenging of givenness. Um, and I, you know, this may be too abstract a question, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but, but I wonder, if you have thoughts about why that's valuable in the first place to, to challenge that givenness, to disrupt it, to, you know, intent so valuable that you're intentionally like creating exercises that are, are whose goal, whose pedagogical goal, right, is to disrupt the givenness and the, of the assumptions that students are coming with. Why is that important for your students or for your teaching or for your classes? Well, there, there are so many different sort of layers to that question. And I think I could probably spend the next two or three hours just talking about it. Um, so I'll try to kind of do some of that work briefly. I would say one thing that actually has to do with a lesson I learned in my undergraduate years, I think it was like history 3000, probably, you know, historical methods, something along those lines, where um, the we had a project which was to learn um, a history from two different perspectives. So we learned the sort of history of um, the colonization of the US from the perspective of an English guy, Francis Parkman, I think was his name. And the other was from the, the perspective of a Native American scholar. I think his name was Francis Oxtell Jennings. Um, I hope I got those names right. If not, I apologize. But 
you know, obviously they got two different versions of what this colonization was like, what it was for, what it looked like, how it played out. Some of the very same points that were being argued from one side were being contested from the other. And for me, it was sort of a transcendent, transformative moment in my education that actually seemed like education. It just didn't seem like um, learning information. It was actually, I was transformed through the process of writing this paper of, of, in which I analyzed the, the different arguments from these two different scholars. So on a certain level, I think I've, I've always been, I've been fascinated with that. And I try to do that in all my classes to have this moment that is transformational. I guess the, the next layer is that in a certain way, it just maps onto psychology. You know, I think about Piaget and the sort of distinction between assimilation and accommodation. And the idea, I kind of feel like my goal as educator is to be like creating these moments of accommodation where they're not just like dumping more information onto their pre-existing schemas, frameworks, whatever, but to be really educated is to continually sort of challenge these frameworks. Um, and then on a deeper level, which I'm not gonna talk much about, is just probably, how I see the world operating in terms of like reified consciousness and like where that leads us to and sort of my stake in that. Basically, why, why a person would be a critical psychologist in the first place, I suppose, is a, the way to get into that other layer. It, it seems to me that, that part of what happens here as well is a, a kind of, it creates a kind of opening that invites students to um, be a bigger player in what they're studying, right? Uh, if, if things aren't given, that means that they can't just sit there and receive, right? That, and and the, I think it's really cool that this is built into the content of what you're teaching, that at some point they have to recognize themselves as part of the construction. Um, no one else is gonna do it for them. Whatever ways they might want to point to you as the professor or to previous scholars as authorities, that there's kind of this um, existential weight that hopefully hits them at some point of, oh, it's, it's up to me to make some sense of this, to offer some interpretation, to take a stand. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's, a, there's a kind of um, maturing and um, even taking a place in the discipline, even for those students that aren't going to be psychologists. I, I, I think that, that that's a real possibility in these sorts of classes and exercises. Yeah, and I think, I think connected too, Brady, with what you're saying is um, something of what I was trying to get at with the, the sort of um, stories that we, that we live by in our lives is one thing I feel like my students struggle with, not just within the discipline of psychology, but in their own lives, is taking responsibility for the part they play in their life. And, and I guess that when, when I think about the narratives that we tell ourselves um, and, and not thinking about them as narratives, especially, can be problematic when it comes to taking responsibility for the part we play and how our life plays out. And instead standing back and sort of letting, letting, letting somebody else, somebody else narrate our life, right? And I, I don't, um, I'm gonna do something kind of strange here, but I wanna ask Brady and Josh a question uh, because we've talked pretty extensively on these podcasts about your methods classes 
And as I'm listening to Chris talk and, and the conversation we're having, I'm thinking how appropriate a conversation like this could be in a methods class um, in helping the student understand um, the part that they play in constructing an empirical study. And, and I know we've talked quite a bit about that, but I wonder if, if you have any thoughts, Josh and Brady, about, about that. Well, I, I, I know you know this, Joe, but um, I, I think even the way that you frame the question points to the fact like, like Chris is teaching a methods class, right? Um, that, 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 that's, that's part of what's frustrating and exciting about all of this that there's this whole dimension of methods and investigation that our commitment to objectivism tends not even to acknowledge in oh, I, and it's empirical too right um but that this this tradition tends not to even think of as part of the canon of uh quote unquote methods course um this is the sort of conversation that i find myself kind of bringing like like we bring our toes right up to it and and maybe maybe get a little taste of it, it in my class yesterday um you know challenging them on the notion that there's no escaping bias and that we want good biases um i think for them that was um radical and revolutionary right um stepping into narrative i think they'd really like that i wish well i Maybe I could, maybe I should bring that into my class more, but um, I'm curious what Josh has to say, though. I would say similar, actually, you know, I feel like this is a hard, this is a hard um, target to arrive at in a methods class, like really getting to this place where students are reflecting on their positionality as a constructor of research and not, not just in the sense that, you know, they're in charge of the choices but in this, in the sense, in this more kind of postmodern sense of like that they're really actually framing the object and, and what knowledge means. I, I feel like I would love to do better at that. And, you know, maybe some of the stuff we're talking about today is could could be a way of doing that. You know, in my class, my master's methods classes, I usually use like the kind of moral framing as a way of getting there because it's 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 not a long journey for students to take. To think about okay what's 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 the right thing to do here and if i expand that realm of consideration um to include things that they don't usually think about when they think about research ethics or research moral you know moral research um but but i i feel like like Brady says we we just kind of get near there and 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 well you know my students typically are not they don't have as much of that uh, existential background that maybe Chris's would, and so it's, it's. I think there's a further journey to go, but you know, I do. I do think that there's something in there, something about this exercise of reflecting on a narrator's position that could translate maybe into into stepping over that line a little further. Yeah, I had a student during this course who didn't have a psychology background, I think actually had a background in drama and was really struggling. I mean, we had like lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations where I was trying to help him understand what narrative inquiry was. And, you know, we got in these really deep conversations about like analyzing what a newscaster is doing when they're delivering a story. But at a certain point in the course where he just said, 
whoa, like I, I, this course is like narrative inquiry is really postmodern. And it wasn't until he like came to that acknowledgement that it like the work that we were doing made any sense to him, which I think is his way of saying like, you really have to take on what it means to be involved in the construction of whatever you're doing, not taking things as given as, you know, in Josh's language. Um, one thing that's kind of intriguing about narrative inquiry is it's not like you're just saying I'm taking on like a postmodern methodology to approach it because even within the field of narrative inquiry there's so much contestation which is why I bring in like the McAdams Bamberg sort of argument so that they are really confronted with the idea that every single methodological move you make you kind of have to be responsible for and understand why you're doing it and that there's a real sense of intentionality behind what you're doing and that you're able to justify why you're doing what you're doing. To me, that's the point where I feel like I've done a good job teaching this course where they can say, this is the research I'm doing within this research. I'm, I'm framing the, I'm conceptualizing the narrative this way for these reasons. Like that's the end goal for me. Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is maybe implicit in a lot of what we're saying, but there, Underlying all of, I think, our whole conversation today is kind of a, a way of valuing a certain kind of person or a certain way of being in the world, maybe. Like that there's, that there's this in, somewhat invisible target of all of the kinds of pedagogical strategies that, and, and goals that we've been talking about that is the sort of person or the way of relating that puts things into question that is critical for lack of a, a better term. You know, there's there's this, this kind of value judgment, I think, undergirding all of this that we, you know, we are imagining a scholar or a student or a person who's, who is, whose comportment is dedicated, I guess, to challenging things, look, looking more deeply, not taking things at face value, you know, like, I think there's that, I don't know, maybe I'm over-interpreting that, but I, I feel like there's this invisible idealized person or way of relating that's that's the target of a lot of these things that we've been talking about. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is, that's what I was sort of hinting at when I talked about the sort of the deeper level of what, why, why I teach the way I teach. Um, and maybe, maybe it's an oversimplification, but for me that just, you know, that's what education is. <laughs> you know, it's not training and it's not just being, having like the appropriate amount of deposits made and sort of a in a banking model, it's having the sort of ability to contend with, to make sense of, to question, to really more than anything. I think about Deb Tolman, justify, justify, justify. Like to me, the like the end goal, this sort of person is a person who can say, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it, which I feel like maybe is, is that radical to think that that's, a, that's like, a, that's what education is? I don't know. Sometimes I think it might be. I don't think it's radical, but I do think that you maybe don't spend a lot of time talking about the, the va these values as values and and as kind of like about the kind of person we imagine or whatever you know, I, I kind of think about it in the context of like my kids for example like um like i i don't feel like i've done a good job as a parent if my kids are just sort of like parroting 
whatever I've said to them or, you know, or whatever I've required of them. Like what, what I'm hoping to see what I, when I, when I feel like I've done a good job is when they are making independent evaluations and choices that demonstrate, you know, that they've really been thoughtful and, and kind and we, whatever, like in a new, in a novel context, not just because I told them to do or say something, right? I'm helping them become the sort of person who would do the things that I think are important. And, you know, I, you know, so that reveals maybe that there's a bit of paternalism <laughs> in the way I think about teaching and maybe everyone <laughs> who does teaching, they, they, some of that paternalism leaks in, but I do think with my students as well, I'm hoping that, to help them develop the skills that, and, and, and values and ideals that will, they can use, you know, on their own initiative and not just do whatever I've, you know, told them they're supposed to do. It, it occurs to me that um, when we teach, there, there's kind of this inescapable and maybe even desirable way that we go into a sort of abstraction where we um, forget our, um, our situatedness as particular people in a particular place at a particular time. Um, you know, including like that relationship that you're talking about, Josh, where, you know, the things that we're talking about have been put together by a professor with intentions that's trying to accomplish this. But, but it strikes me that in this class, Chris, um, and, and with these exercises, it, it really invites arriving at this point of self-awareness of, um, oh, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Head is a, a, a narrator, and he's um, he's been coming from a perspective this entire semester, and and I am too. And I thought I was just showing up to take stuff in. Is that something that you explicitly come to with them? Is it something that just kind of um, emerges, or or maybe doesn't get addressed? Oh no, it's like it's like on my on my shirt sleeve day one. So my uh, my first graduate degree was in constructivist education, and that's sort of the aim of constructivist education that you're helping people construct. So, yeah, I'm really explicit about it, and you know, I even kind of let people know like this is what the project is, this is how this whole course is laid out, this is like what how you move through it. So, expect that at the end you're going to be wrestling with all these deep issues and um, enacting them, which means to say that you have thought about it enough, you've thought about it to the extent that you can like land in a position that allows you to move, to make some choices, to set up something tangible. I think, um, yeah, that's maybe a good place for us to uh, wrap up our conversation. Thanks so much, Chris, for coming and being on the podcast. No problem. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.